Welcome to the Business of Primary Care podcast, where we discuss the latest news, trends, and practices in primary care. Our community is full of healthcare's best. From physicians to CEOs, you will hear from brilliant minds on topics ranging from value-based care to the latest in healthcare tech. Welcome back. During our last episode, we talked with Dr. Jessel, the Chief Medical Officer at Athena Health. We discussed medication management, the role of technology in primary care, and the future of AI in healthcare. And this week, we welcome Joe Ann Preston, author of Lead the Way in Five Minutes a Day, sparking high performance in yourself and your team. She joins our host, Katila Farley, for today's discussion. Katila is a registered nurse and an experienced healthcare executive. Her professional experience includes 18 plus years in healthcare, and she currently serves as the chief customer officer at Affirm Health. Joanne works as Workforce and Organizational Development Manager at Rural Wisconsin Health Cooperative. To kick off today's discussion, Joanne shares a little bit about herself. Thanks, Katilla. It's so nice to be here with you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and your colleagues out there about this very important topic. Um, so a little bit about me. You know, this is the hardest question you put it first. Um, <laughs> How do you start to tell someone about yourself? Well, um, I'm only funny by accident. I know what my top five values are, and they include love and family and health and uh, beauty and creativity and finding meaning. And I think that meaning piece is part of what gets me up every day is um, how can I make a difference? How can I help people make meaning of this crazy world that we live in. Um, how can I help leaders be better? Because I think we have so many challenges ahead of us. And the change, the learning curve is so much faster and steeper every passing day. So uh, there's lots of opportunities to bring that um, to the to the work. How did you get into healthcare? Let's just kind of start from the beginning um, and we'll go from there. Well, actually, when I when I went to college, all I really knew was that I wanted to do some kind of career where, you know, you help people. And it didn't really have it much narrowed down more than that. And to be honest, at my age, in those days, there weren't a lot of, I won't say there weren't a lot of options for women, but your your choices were still pretty narrow. Teacher, counselor, you know, nurse, those kinds of things. Um so I don't know if I had to go back and do it over again. I might do something a little differently, but at the end of the day, what I wanted to do was a career that had meaning that where I could help people. And so my first jobs were in the behavioral health field. And I spent about the first 20 years of my career working with folks with mental health issues, substance abuse issues, and some counseling that I did, but more so I got promoted into leadership roles so that I was hiring and supervising people who were doing the counseling. So that's where I think that natural leadership kind of came out in me that I wanted to help other people be successful at what they were doing. I will say that, you know, in the times that we're in today, it's really much less stigma around uh, the mental health issues. And I'm really pleased to see that a lot of primary care and hospitals are really looking at the whole person and not that your, you know, substance abuse or mental health issues are separate from your, you know, diabetes or your, you know, cancer or anything else. It's all really tied together. Um, so that's been kind of a, a passion that I've had all along is really treating the whole person. 
however that ended up looking. Now, you shared my title at the beginning, Workforce and Organizational Development Senior Manager. I did not say, boy, when I grow up, I want to be a Workforce and Organizational Senior Manager. I like didn't even know what that word, those words were, but um, I knew I wanted to lead. I wanted to be in a profession that helped people and and really focus on growing and helping people be the best that they can. So that's really how I got started. Now, the last half of my career, I have done more of that organizational development piece. We spend a lot of time at work. So how do we do that well? How do leaders create a culture that people want to stay in? And how do we look at individuals and coach them to be their best and um you know, really help you to achieve those those uh, mission, vision, and values that every organization has. I love how service minded you are. It's fantastic to to hear how you got started and where you ended up in leadership and and where you still have to go. One thing that grabs my attention too is that you started in behavioral health, and you're exactly right. I love that we're actually recognizing the disease process and being able to pull that in into the holistic view. I would love to see the same thing happen with nutrition and our you know, just pulling it all in. And it's about the whole person. That's just fascinating that, that that's kind of like where you started, where you learned that collaborative approach and then how you now lead change and help others kind of lead in that direction with that service mind. We're whole people. We're we like even I think it's funny that we go to the dentist for one part of our body, you know, for our mouth, and we go to the counselor for the mental health, and we go to the doctor for you know all these physical things. And you know, yes, there's importance in specialties, but what I would hope is that, like even like in clinic care, that when people are asked, you know, to ask your patient, you know, do you feel safe at home? that they don't feel like, oh, that's just an extra question. I don't have time to ask that. It's like, you know, no, that's, that's a part of this person's health. And it's so integrated into anything that you're going to try to help them with for any of their physical issues. And that's just one example. Um, you know, I can remember being working in substance abuse treatment and people would come in with like a mouthful of dental decay. It's like, no wonder they were drinking and using, they were healing their pain. And it's like, let's try to heal the whole thing and get your teeth fixed and then let's deal with the other stuff and, you know, do it all together. That holistic approach is super, uh, super important. I know you could probably think of a few, but out of curiosity, just what is the best advice you have been given? There are several that actually really come to mind right away. And the reason they come to mind is that they're short and sweet. You know, I I had a boss one time who would, after a difficult conversation, he would walk me to the door and, and, you know, very supportive. And he'd just kind of pat me on the shoulder and he'd say, be courageous, go be courageous. And it's just like, you know, 25 years later, that rings in my head, be courageous. What does that mean at this point in my career versus what it meant then? At that point, it was like, you know, I supervised someone who was older than me, more experienced than me and applied for the job that I had and didn't get it. So I was really intimidated. I was young and I was very intimidated by her. And so I was just kind of letting her get away with bad behavior. And, you know, I would talk to him about it. He'd say, you know, you need to have a courageous conversation. You need to sit down and think about what you need to say, what your expectations are going forward and, you know, be courageous. That's what that meant at that point in time. You know, today it's about being courageous uh, to do a podcast or, um, <laughs> you know, to teach a new class or to really try to figure out this thing that we have facing us now, which is 
there's not enough people to fill the positions that we have going forward in healthcare. There's just demographically not enough people. So as we compete for employees, we want the best employees. How do we get them and how do we keep them? That's going to take some courage because maybe some of the things that we've done in the past aren't going to work in the future. Um, So anyway, you asked me about advice. So be courageous. I also really love something that you can hang on to, which is like Don Miguel Ruiz. He wrote the book, The Four Agreements. The Four Agreements are always do your best. You know, your best today might be different than tomorrow, but do your best that you can. Um, Be impeccable with your word, which doing a deep dive on that, you really could. It's like, how do I make sure I'm telling the truth and telling it in a way that people can hear it? If I just be honest, Um, don't take things personally, which is a huge, huge one for a lot of folks. We Somebody comes in to the front desk at a clinic and they're upset and they take it out on the registration person. It's really, really hard not to take that personally. But if we can step back and say, you know, that's not about me. What is this really about? And again, back to that compassion, how can I deflect it off of my own heart and not take it personally? And then the fourth agreement is don't make assumptions. We do all all the time. We make assumptions all the time about what we think people mean by their behavior, about what uh, what we think someone is out to get us, or we, we assume what someone means by something. You know, if I just step back and say, okay, I'm making assumptions, you know, like Brene Brown says, what's the story I'm telling myself right now? And stop telling that story and just really listen. So those are all little snippets. And I guess for me, they stick as advice because I can remember them. And, you know, that's why I like, I like to give tidbits that are like, like grab onto that and you can hang on to it in those moments when things are tough and go, oh yeah, I'm making assumptions or, oh yeah, I'm, I'm taking this personally. This isn't about me. Or, oh yeah, I need to be courageous. I need to step into something that's uncomfortable. I love that. And you wrote Q-tip. I didn't make it up. <laughs> I didn't make that up, but I don't know where I got it. Um, this is one of those things about being as old as I am. It's like, there's so much stuff in here and I don't know where it came from. So I don't want to claim that I made that up. Um, but Q-tip, we share this a lot. But it sticks with me. Good, good. Quit taking this personally, you know, and carry a Q-tip in your pocket if you have to, to remember, because that's hard, you know, especially when you are, um, you are that feeling kind of person, you feel things that you have a great store of empathy. And sometimes the way that comes out is, is things hurt more than we want them to. So, okay, Q-tip here, let this go. I think all of those are great nuggets of advice. I love the curve being courageous. I'm going to remember that one myself. It's it's easy. I immediately I think of a lion. So uh, that's that's pretty awesome. So when you start working with a leader, what are your initial steps in understanding their needs? What's your process? And, you know, not not giving away what you do for a living or anything, but just kind of help us understand, especially in your book, you, you talk a lot about um, being able to figure yourself out, taking the time to know your weaknesses and strengths. But when you start with somebody, what are your first steps? The first thing I remind myself to do, uh, because I'm not good at it naturally, and I think a lot of people aren't, is to listen. Um, Often, you know, we know a lot of stuff. So I want to come in and I say, oh, you need to do this, or here's a great idea, or have you tried this? Um, But unless I really listen first, and even listen for what's not being said, 
I'm going to miss what's most important. So the first thing I do is really try to ask a lot of questions like, you know, what is it that you're really good at? Uh, Where are you struggling? What would you like to know or do better at the end of our time together? That's really one of the key questions that I ask. And then I really, really try to listen Um, because everybody's doing something well. Uh, When they're struggling, they don't remember that. So I want to help them to remember that. Um, But I also want to give them hope that, you know, if you are struggling, that, you know, don't, don't give up. Maybe that's the be courageous coming back out in me. It's like, you know, I ask people to be, be courageous, you know, talk about what you're struggling with. I will also share that, you know, I was promoted in my first job out of college after about three months and I was supervising people I was friends with and boy, did I blow it. I mean, I blew it big time. (laughs) You know, I made a lot of mistakes. I, you know, I, I had favorites. I shared things with one and I didn't share it with the other. I uh, didn't hold people accountable because I didn't want to have the tough conversations. You know, I said things that I wished I wouldn't have said, you know, so I made a lot of mistakes and I've actually <laughs> made a career out of my mistakes because, you know, if we can't learn from them, what good are they? Um, That's the best career, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Here's everything not to do. <laughs> yeah. Don't do this. Don't be like me. Yes. <laughs> But I do think when it, when I'm working with a leader, I, I definitely want them to know that you know, I don't have all the answers and nobody's perfect. I really find that a lot of leaders get into the leadership role because they're really good at what they do technically. And then they move into leadership or management, whatever you want to call it. It's a little both. Um, and then they struggle because people are messy and people don't always do what you expect them to do and or what you have in your mind that they should do. And so sometimes leaders will struggle and they don't like that feeling of not being perfect or not being great. And it's a learning curve. So, you know, I, I hope to help people have just some, you know, some grace and humility that it's okay to, if you didn't do something perfectly, you know, unless you killed somebody, you, you can go back and say, you know, I didn't handle that conversation very well. Can, can we start over? I've got, I want to make this better. So really, really listening is what I I hope to do. And then the second thing is help people break stuff down into chunks. This would be another thing that's probably helped me be most effective in my life of anything. And that's to take the big stuff and break it down. Like you are a clinic manager and you now have a huge project to implement a new electronic medical record or some kind of big thing like that. And it feels overwhelming. People overwhelm themselves with this stuff and say, well, what's your list today? Break it down to what you can do today because then it starts to feel that motivation. And, you know, that's that's what makes people tick. It's like, oh, I made progress. Okay, we can keep moving forward. One of my favorite things I have in my role, I get to work with practice managers um, across many states. And it's really fun for me to meet those brand new practice managers who are are really just so ambitious and gung ho, and um, just remember those days <laughs> of of that, and and then to to kind of just offer some resources that I'm aware of. So, are there any um, that just jump off the top of your head that are your go to resources that you would want people to know about? Well, I think when it comes to to developing yourself as a leader, finding out who your new peer, your new peer group is is important. Because maybe you've moved into the role of practice manager from another type of position. You 
have to acknowledge you're leaving a peer group and moving to a different one. So finding networks of people that have been there, someone to mentor. I think mentoring is a way underused uh, tool for, for new leaders in any kind of role is to go out and say, hey, I'm new in this role. You've been doing it a while. Can we have coffee once a week for a while or once a month or whatever, you know, or Zoom or whatever works for you to say, you know, here's the top three things I'm working on. Here's my top three challenges. Um, you know, I want to hear your best story that, you know, from something that you have learned. So putting some structure to it helps, you know, that's why I come up with things like, you know, top three challenges, top three things that, that work for you. So I think mentoring is huge that finding yourself a new network, obviously podcasts like this, you know, listen to things that are going to be meaningful for you. And I would say also making sure that you're carving out the time, kind of like a you know how people buy a safe in their house that's fire safe. You know, you put your important documents in there. It's like there's fire burning all around us. There's, you know, healthcare is like moving so fast and so busy that we have to carve out some space for that which is important, but not necessarily urgent in the moment. And whether that's your, you know, half hour on Mondays, uh, whatever, pick a time that works for you that you can like close off the rest of the world and just say, what am I doing about my leadership this week? How am I developing? Certainly books, um, you know, good resource. Yeah, yeah. So carving out that time. Mentorship may feel like a complete waste of time and energy when you are running a busy clinic and can't seem to find extra time for just about anything. Before you write it off, consider some of the studies that show some incredible results. Recently, a Wall Street Journal article outlined 70% of Fortune 500 companies have formal mentorship programs in place. And they found that mentees are promoted five times more often than those who are not being mentored. Additionally, retention rates are significantly higher amongst both mentees and mentors by around 20%. There was another study conducted in the Mali Ministry of Health in order to test just how effective mentorship programs are in improving knowledge transfer. After a one-week group mentorship program in which five highly trained nurses shared their knowledge with a group of colleagues, the participants were tested to see how their knowledge of the topic improved. The results were staggering. Competency scores went from 32% to 97%, which is more than a double increase. Pairing your employees up in mentoring relationships and finding a mentor for yourself can help save so much trial and error. It can increase your retention and employee happiness. So start small for yourself and for your employees and start finding ways to mentor each other and look for mentors outside of your company as well. So let's dive back into the conversation with Joanne. She speaks to her specific audience and who she wrote her book for. I think that my niche is the frontline manager because I think a lot of times, especially in healthcare, people do move into those roles from their technical role and management and leadership is a whole new ball game. And I did that. That's my story of my own career. I get it. Um, As I said, I've made a lot of the mistakes. I've got some solutions that work. So I really think it speaks to people because it's hard to take theory and go into a meeting and use it. So I like, I like practical tips. I like ways to say things that help me, you know, kind of shape it then into making it my own. So I do think that frontline manager, that said, I think also I've had a lot of CEOs share with me that they keep the book on their desk and they refer to it when they need to have a difficult coaching conversation or a conflict or you know, want some tips for helping their new managers manage projects and things like that. So 
obviously not everyone loves it, but I, I, I do think that there are a lot of people that respond well to it because you can actually take action on something. And that's what I want to leave people with is the theory based, you know, I, I'm sure that some of my writing ends up being more essay and kind of my opinion, but it's based on my experience um, and the things that I have read. And so it, it is theory based, but I think when you're too theoretical, people will be like, oh yeah, that's interesting. And now I have to go to work. Yeah. What, how do I apply it? So right. application is big. You know, it has to be short. Um, people are so busy um, and they might, I will recommend books that, you know, you read from cover to cover and over time you need to read those. But today, you know, I've got 15 minutes. So what can I do in 15 minutes or five minutes or whatever I've got that I can actually kind of plant a seed there that will help me today? So speaking of thinking of resources, do you have any technology must-haves versus nice-to-haves? I will share that um, what I think is helpful when it comes to technological solutions is that keeping them simple is important. Also, I have worked for organizations that rolled out these really complex uh, technological solutions for performance reviews or managing employee performance or what have you. And Here's the big thing that gets underestimated is the amount of time that you need to commit to teaching people to actually use them. That's one piece. So we that when it comes to leading change, you really need to overestimate the time it takes to educate and help people feel comfortable with whatever technology you're using. Because uh, one of the things that looks like change resistance is really just fear of looking stupid. Like back in the day, we can say this now, when physicians first started using electronic health record, you heard a lot of resistance, you know, I don't want to do that. But physicians don't like to look stupid. You know, no one does. And so that's where it comes out looking like, you know, resistance to change is that that people don't want to feel that way. So I would say carve out more time for education. I love that you pull up uh, the conversion to electronic medical records. And it is amazing to me how many clinics are still working on that. And you, now you have the new adaptation of the scribes and, and AI and what AI is going to do. And I think that's a very powerful comment that you made is nobody likes to look stupid. And um, I remember we were rolling out our electronic medical record and the company that we were using got a percentage of collections. So of course they didn't recommend decreasing your schedule time because that would impact everybody. Uh, but I, I was pretty adamant. No, I wanted two solid weeks of a half schedule. Probably the best thing I ever did in my career was go against the advice of the very product we were rolling out. I can't agree with you more. Make sure you leave time for questions and adoption and process development and the fact that you probably got it wrong and you need to have some room to get it right. Room to get it right and also room to make those mistakes and having that what we call just culture where it's like I can say, hey, I you know I don't get this. Um, having people who are trained as preceptors or super users or mentors, whatever you want to call them, who really understand that it's not enough to just say, you know, do you have any questions? Or just let me know if you have any questions, because people won't. They will be like, well, I don't know what to even ask. I don't even know what I don't know. So it's a lot like the teach back that we do with patients. You know, 
every one of us has probably been in a medical appointment where the doctor or the nurse, some, somebody was telling us, okay, when you get home, do this, blah, 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 blah. And that's what we heard was blah, 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 because we get out and we're like, um, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do now. And I've got a master's degree. So like, <laughs> you know, I'm smart. It's not that I'm not smart. I just have no idea what they just told me. And I'm sick. And I've got all these other things in my mind. The same is true for employees when they're learning on that learning curve. We're not at our best. We got a lot going on in our head. We're, we fear looking dumb. We fear uh, not being able to get it right. We fear, will this change how I work or who I work with? And so that fear comes out looking like, you know, this idea is stupid. I don't want to do that stupid electronic medical record when, you know, maybe it's stupid, maybe it's not, but <laughs> I think it's mostly not stupid, but we've, we've really stumbled our way through it. Um, and I appreciate what you said, Katila, about you making sure there's time for people to learn. We're going to reduce our schedule because you can't carry a full load and learn. It just can't. And especially in primary care, um, there's safety involved because mistakes can be very, very impactful uh, to a patient. So wanting to not only protect your ability to learn, but also remembering that with all of these changes and new adaptations, um, these physicians are making life and death decisions, and we need to be very aware of that. And I listen to people, uh, people have opinions about how to run your business and they're in fast food or they're in (laughs) a different world. And it's like, you can take a lot of that, but some things you just can't replicate uh, when it comes to primary care. And so really understanding that I think is a pretty powerful moment. So, so we've talked today and you've mentioned this a few times, so I was excited to get to this question, but you've talked about keeping staff. And so I did want to talk to you about retention. And, and it was difficult pre-COVID, uh, much less post-COVID, plus, like you said, other things earlier. But any best advice for retaining staff or, or even some very practical tips on things? Because I, I know there's this world um, of remote work and it's very competitive and, and primary care practices, they need people on the ground, boots on the ground. So any thoughts on retention in this world we're living in right now? A lot of thoughts. And I don't know if I have uh, the answers. I think we're still figuring this out. But this is, this is my belief is that when you look at things that measure employee engagement over time, there are some things that are pretty consistent that I think won't change. Like I'm not going to leave for a dollar an hour or more across the street if a my pay is fair, and once that is settled, uh, I have a good relationship with my manager and with my coworkers. So I think what needs to happen now is back to the conversation we were having about the holistic person, not just the patient and all their issues, but the employees. I think younger employees are telling us, I want a workplace where I feel safe. If I don't feel safe, hey, I got choices. I, you know, I can go anywhere. <laughs> and it's kind of a, a buyer's market, if you will, uh, when it comes to employees. So building that relationship, taking that time on the front end to make sure that you are real with them and you build a relationship of trust and that you spend time with them and that you are clear about expectations, but you're clear in a way that says, Hey, I know. So Catilla, let's say you're my manager 
uh, I know that I can come to you and say, I know you went through this with me on Monday, uh, but I've forgotten. And you respond in a way that that makes it a-okay for me to do that. So let's walk through it again. Tell me what you know already about this procedure. Well, I, I know A, B, and C, but I don't know D, E, F, and G. So, okay, well, let's start there. So it's really getting skillful at that kind of uh, onboarding. Onboarding is going to be even more huge than ever. We teach a preceptor workshop uh, where I'm at, at the, the Rural Wisconsin Health Cooperative, and we cover uh, this four-pronged model of precepting. So precepting is all positions, not just nursing, but but anybody who's new, how are you socializing them is the one prong. So socialization means how do you create a sense of belonging? You're supposed to be here. You know, this is where you put your coat. <laughs> this is where we're going to go to lunch together. We're going to invite you. Or if it's remote, this is how we're going to check in and huddle each day on a Zoom call. And we're going to start with, you know, something that's not work related, just to get to know each other. So socialization, belonging, um, you know, we just hired someone new and we brought her a little gift basket of things that we know that she likes so the first day, you know, so not the party, the end of the, the time they leave, but, you know, a party or something to celebrate when they come. So socialization, uh, being a professional role model is another prong. So having a discussion with your team, what does it mean to work here? What does being professional mean on our team? You know, what, what does it look like? What does it sound like? What are the behaviors? A third prong is being a learning uh, facilitator. So understanding personality styles, understanding different learning styles and having conversations with a new person. How do you learn best? Think of something that you learned um, in your last job that seemed really hard, but you learned it. What helped you? What didn't help you? Um, so asking those kinds of questions so that you're really establishing this is how this person learns and then adapting so that you can do that. Um, and then the fourth prong is the evaluator. Getting good at saying, here's where you really got it right. And here's a place where, where you missed the mark. Let's work on that. And what I have heard from young people um, over the last few years, and I would say that I used to look at this differently. But young people are telling me they really kind of like that sandwich approach, like, here's what you're doing really well, and here's something that we need to fix, and then here's another area where you're doing well. So that you're really focusing on the positive, but you don't lose that piece that needs to be fixed, and then you provide that support for it. So kind of looking at those four prongs as, you know, this is what I need to do to onboard, belonging, uh, learning styles, a professional role model, and evaluator. So those are just a few thoughts that I have about, about retention. Um, you know, people do have choices. I think we're going to have to work harder, just like you made more time to teach people uh, when you had the implementation of a new electronic medical record. When you've got a new person, you know, we're big fans of precepting. That means if you're precepting, you can't carry a full load of your job because it takes time to teach and spend time with that person. And I know that the literature out of nursing says, you know, 18 months for onboarding. If you don't keep people in that first 18 months, what they call vote with their feet and they, they're going to go somewhere else. I think that's true for all of us. Boils down to building those relationships of trust. Even before COVID-19, the staffing shortages in healthcare were beginning to take a toll on our communities. But after the pandemic, the burnout and retention rates have only worsened. In a study published in the Journal of American Medical Association, 
Just under 32% of doctors reported feeling burnt out in 2019. In 2022, that figure rose to 40%. Nurses fared similarly. Nearly 41% reported burnout in 2019. And by 2022, the number was a shade over 49%. Data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that there will be around 2 million openings in healthcare every year until 2031. The U.S. may lack up to 450,000 nurses for direct patient care, equating to a 10 to 20% deficit by 2025. There may be a shortage of more than 3.2 million lower wage health workers. That includes medical assistants, home health aides, nursing assistants by 2026. The U.S. will need an additional 98,700 medical and lab technologists and technicians by 2025. So the need for good leadership and work culture has never been more clear. Studies show that 79% of employees will quit due to a lack of appreciation. So in a time where workers have their choice, making your clinics and hospitals fun places to work where people feel valued, understood, seen, and known is key to keeping good employees. So that leads us to Katila's next question for Joanne. Okay, so strategically, is there something you guide leaders to never miss? When it comes to change, I think it's really helpful to have a model. And um, one of the models that, well, there's several models that are out there, but John Cotter's model is is really some one of those applicable models that you can grab onto. So if you don't have some aspects of these strategies for your change, it's going to fall off. It's it's not going to happen. It's not going to be successful. So, you know, for anyone listening, you know, think about the changes that your organization has been through. And if it didn't go so well, it's probably because of one of these things. So there was no sense of urgency. If it's not urgent, it might be something that you'd like to do, but it there are other things more urgent. So you have to maintain that sense of urgency. You have to think about working as a team. Nothing we do in healthcare do we do alone. And so who, here's the question I ask people to think about. Who else needs to know about what you're doing? Or who else needs to be informed? So always, always asking that question for the teamwork piece. I think vision is a big deal. Where are you going? <laughs> you know, Chip and Dan Heath also did a lot of work with change and they they have this phrase, you know, creating a destination postcard. So when you're trying to get employees on board on something and going to where you want to go, let's say you want to have those great ratings uh, for patient experience or customer service, you know, why? You know, what's this about? Why are we doing this? Why is this so important? And telling the stories that make it someplace that people want to go. So having a clear vision is not that stuff that you've got on the plaques on the wall. It's about the stories that you tell and being clear. Um, How you communicate. Um, This is probably the big one. Out of all of these, it stands out. It relies on a clear vision to be able to communicate it. But I think for all leaders, you know, think strategically about how you're going to communicate, how often, in what ways. Um, Don't just say, hey, I sent an email because if I sent an email, that's all that happened. You have no idea if anyone read it and if they read it, if they understood it. So that's big. Um, How are you empowering people? This is a word that gets thrown around a lot, but uh, what empowerment means is that I believe I can take action to fix something right where it's at patient comes in, uh, they're late, they miss the bus, they, uh, you know, are crying, they're upset at the at the desk. Um, can I fix that? You know, can I do something to help that situation instead of just saying, no, I'm sorry, you missed your appointment, you'll have to reschedule. 
Yeah, that's the policy. And you you want to teach people that policies matter, matter, but you know, real life matters too. So bring that compassion back. How do you empower people to fix stuff? I think you need to also, um, you know, Cotter talks about having quick wins. If you're going to change something, make sure that within two weeks, people can say, hey, that sacrifice was worth it. You know, I think that doing things this new way might make life easier. And making sure that as a leader, you know, I'm just chuckling because I'm thinking about all the times when I ask people to do a different thing, do a new thing, but the old way was sitting right there on their desk continually. It never went away. And I wondered why they didn't want to do the new thing. Well, it's because the old way was right there. It was easier. It's like, you know, what's most comfortable? That's what I'm going to do. So I have to make the change, the new way, as easy and accessible to people as the old way and get the old way out of the way. Um, I think the other thing I would say to people is be very wary of our tendency to hope that change will just slow down because it it really won't. Um, so how do we go with it? So one of the things that I do is I uh, have studied Zen leadership and we talk about this concept of being a bouncing ball on fast moving waters. You know, the water's not going to slow down. The The rapids will continue to flow and and storm through the, the valley. Uh, but how can I stay that bouncing ball that lightly touches on top? And we do that by uh, the practices that we do to stay healthy, whether it's meditation or something physical that brings our physical self to, uh, to our leadership. Um, that's going to help us manage stress. It's going to help us lead with thoughtfulness, with the pause. I know I'm going lots of different directions here for you, but I I think all these pieces that I'm telling you are part of being a strategic leader is keeping all of these things, having a philosophy that you follow so that you can look at the work that you do and it's going to stick. And the last strategy of Cotter's model is nailing it to the culture. So we haven't talked a lot about workplace culture. We, we have and we haven't. We haven't used that word. But what kind of culture are you creating that people either want to stay in or they don't? You know, think about places that you go. Um, you know, why do you go back? You go back because people care. They're friendly. They do what they say they're going to do. They deliver. It's clean. Um, it's safe. Uh, you get attention. Just thinking about going to the doctor's office. I want them to establish rapport, but then I want it to be about me. So that's part of the job is making it about that culture is we make it about that patient. We put them at the center of everything and then decisions are easy. I often say, if you know what your, your core values and beliefs are, then decisions aren't hard anymore. They, they're, they're pretty clear. So what kind of culture are you creating? That's beautiful. I'm immediately, I'm thinking back, um, People over policy, and that uh, is for the employee. That's so good. People over policy, and it's hard. It's hard to do. And when you create policy, make sure you're thinking of the people. Give your staff enough room to make that change. I think Disney does a, a really great job of that, uh, and that's why their customer service is so amazing. Is is having that ability to make a decision, like you said, things stagnate, or if you're a practice manager and you're drowning, who are you growing so that everything's not falling on you? And and I think everything that you said, um, that all comes from, if your culture is one of leadership, then you can lead the change a little bit better because it's not just falling on you. 
And so just kind of taking everything that you said, all of that factors into retention as well. At the end of every episode, we like to ask a few final questions to conclude the show. The first is, what do you think is the biggest challenge in primary care today? The phrase that comes to my mind is regulatory burden. (laughs) There's so much of it. Um, You know, I would love for things to get a little less complex uh, so that you could do what you're meant to do. If you're a doctor, you go be a doctor. You don't have to take stuff home to work on what they call pillow time and, you know, for the, that practice manager that, you know, there's just not redundant work that comes your way because of regulatory burden. How will primary care change in the next five years? I think uh, creativity. Um, I think it will, for example, one of our hospitals in Wisconsin has a clinic that has no waiting room, you know, just think about it. We create waiting rooms. So we are, are in, we are structuring our business for people to wait. People don't like to pay for waiting. <laughs> so they, they're doing it and they figured it out. So there's occasions that they do have to wait, but uh, for the most part, people come in, they self room, you know, we're moving through some of this stuff. Like, why do we have a waiting room? Nobody wants to wait. So I, I get there's challenges with that, but I think the only way we're going to make things better is with just a ton of creative approaches to solutions and thinking, I don't want to use that phrase, think outside the box, but you know, we are so far in the box. We can't even see the opening in some cases when it comes to healthcare. So let's just, let's blow the thing up. (laughs) What is one big scary dream you have for yourself or for the industry? My fear, if I look at it from like a negative is I fear that we are not appealing to young people enough about wanting to come into healthcare as we went into COVID, healthcare workers were heroes, and then they became the villains because you know you had to get a vaccine or you had to wear a mask or you couldn't visit your loved ones, whatever. Um, I mean, I don't mean whatever, as in that's a little thing. Th- these are hard things that we've had to deal with, and I think young people might be thinking, "Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I want that," and that I'm afraid of, and we have to really work on fixing that. Uh, what I'm excited about, if you take scary as like, ooh, this could happen, is the same young people will figure out a better way to do things that will not only, we won't just keep doing healthcare the way we've always done it, but we'll be creative. We'll look at social determinants of health, where we look at community health, population health. We'll create environments where it's easier to walk to pick up your groceries and they're fresh and everybody has access to them versus, you know, buy fast food and, you know, plop on the couch. And so it's, it's looking at the whole person again, and, and not just, you know, not just going to the doctor as being healthcare, you know, again, with looking at social determinants of health, going to the doctor or in the hospital is really a small part of our health. We also have, you know, food and nutrition, our housing situation, our our socioeconomic status, our you know ability to get childcare for when we work, um, the environmental factors, you know, climate. All of that stuff plays into our health just as much. It, it doesn't replace going to the doctor. I'm not saying that, but it is a big part of it. So looking at all of that to create population health and wellness, even taking something like diabetes and thinking, could we set a big audacious goal to reduce diabetes in the next 10, 20 years? And I think that young creative people are going to help us do that. So there, that's my, that's my spiel for today. 
So powerful. I love that you bring that up. Uh, it's interesting. We go over to Europe and uh, the cheapest food is the fresh food. And we come to the United States and the cheaper food is, we, we call it the morgue, right? It's where all the canned and boxed and processed food is. And so I think you're onto something and it's, it's going to take a full societal shift there. But I do think that that's big and scary and exciting all at the same time. And something I work on regularly, <laughs> making better choices too, right? Me too, every day. But it's like organizational change. If I make the old way easier and the new, better way harder to do, then of course I'm going to do things the old way. If it's easier for me to get you know, bad food, not exercise, not address other health issues, then that's human nature is, is, I mean, that's part of my interest in people all along in my career in psychology and what makes people tick. It's like, yeah, of course they're going to do the easy thing. We're, we're humans. That's what we do. The path of least resistance. But if I make, if I put sidewalks in even for people to walk, they'll walk more. The whole thing of, you know, this one's fascinating to me. If you give people a smaller plate, they actually take less food. It's just like, it's crazy, but we have to make it easier to do things healthier for people. Thank you for listening to the Business of Primary Care podcast. We are honored that you've chosen to be a part of this community. In a world where traditional primary care must adapt, evolve, and change to thrive, we believe community, supportive resources, and education are essential. We are committed to finding answers and a better way forward. You can expect us to provide you with the latest news, trends, and best practices so that you can win in the business of primary care. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to our newsletter at businessofprimarycare.com and follow us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe to get new episodes wherever you like to listen. Lastly, if you'd like to connect with Joanne Preston or Katila Farley, we've linked their LinkedIn profiles in the show notes.